This is the organic stream. Welcome. If you look at the history of civilization, there is a direct relationship between the decline of soil quality and the decline of those civilizations. All these things came from the earth. They need to go back to the earth. We're not just keeping this stuff out of the landfill and making a product. And that's the attitude you have to take. Every single day, somebody knocks on your door and says, Can I have your waste food? If you collect waste Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Organic Stream on CompostStory.org. I'm your host, Aline Murphy, and this is part two of the two part special on vineyards. We're in Australia today talking to CEO and Vineyard Manager of Food and Beverages Australia Limited, Ashley Keegan. Ashley has more than 17 years of viticultural management experience and has been using composted green organic mulch on vineyards since 2003 to great success. He joins us today to tell us about his experiences, his strategies in applying the mulch and about the costs, risks and benefits of using composted mulch on vineyards. It's a very exciting interview and if you have any comments or questions please leave them on our website compostory.org or send us a tweet at compostoryorg. And before we start we'd like to thank Wylad Living Soils for making this episode possible. Wylad Living Soils is an Australian-owned company formed to supply sustainable, biological, organic and humus compost fertility products and programs that support the natural balance of the physical, chemical and biological aspects of the soil, lessening the reliance on conventional chemical fertilizer inputs. For more information, check out their website at www.wyladlivingsoils.com.au And now here's Ashley for this week's Organic Stream. So Ashley, you're the CEO of Fable, which stands for Food and Beverages Australia Limited. And Fable is a commercial farming company that manages agricultural businesses across Australia. Now, can you give me some more information about Fable? Yeah, so we're a large agribusiness management company based in Adelaide, South Australia. We operate a number of viticultural enterprises, but also other horticultural operations as well. It's pretty much spread across the country with a... um, focusing viticulture in South Australia. Right, okay. So you manage agribusinesses. Uh, do you manage them solely for clients or do you own some yourself? We own our own and uh, also manage for other. So if you might be a company that owns an asset or you might be an individual, but we also do that work uh, as well. But we ultimately own uh, a large percentage of what we do ourselves. We also do some consulting work to the industry on an external basis as well. Mm-hmm. And how many hectares of vineyards do you manage at the moment? Uh, we have about uh, 1,600 hectares under management at the moment. So, Right, so that's 1,600 hectares. That's uh, nearly 4,000 acres. So that's quite a lot. And what are your key performance indicators then? Um, in other words, what do you take into account when you're managing and improving the vineyards? Yeah, interesting question. My, you know, I'm agronomist by uh, training and viticulturist, but uh, my managers call me the accountant now because we, uh, you know, we have to sort of measure the bottom lines of anything that we do. And again, I guess I look at it a bit more broadly with the return on investment, whether it be purely from a financial point of view or a return on investment in our time or our technology, any of our inputs that we put into the operations. 
we do extensive internal and external benchmarking from a KPI perspective. My philosophy is trying to be in the top 5% of anything that we do. So, again, when you start to benchmark yourself across the sector, ultimately you go to uh, financial metrics pretty quickly to be able to do that in an objective manner. All right. So financial success is, of course, important to you. But in terms of return on investment, uh, you take a broader view and include things like labor, time, technology, which is good to know. And of course, um, the topic today is costs, risks and benefits of using composted mulch on vineyards. Can you tell me what exactly you use on your vineyards? Uh, we, we effectively, we've done several different trial work uh, with a lot of different products. The products that we've mainly uh, settle on now are composted green organic mulches. So it's a um, green organic waste composted through the Australian Standard 4454. We can have them specifically blended to different what I call aggregate sizes and different fines profiles depending on what we're trying to do with the product. Great. And um, where do you source the product or where do you get it from? Okay, so our compost comes from commercial compost suppliers. And in our city, there's two or three main suppliers that do that. Uh, the majority of the material that we use comes from a feedstock that is curbside collected. So I'm not sure of what happens in other countries, but in Australia, you have 240-litre green wheelie bin that the home gardener can put their lawn clippings in, their pruning in, and in some circumstances can also put uh, food stuff into that stream. Those bins are collected, taking it off to a processing facility where they're composted and that processor then generally will do a few things but create a blend and a particle size profile that is what I've ordered up. So that's that's where we get our product from. Right, okay. So basically mostly you use curbside collected green organic composted mulch. And can I ask you about the specifications you ask for? Do you make specifications or special blends for each particular site or is there just a general blend that you use for all your vineyards? Yeah, it's a really good question and it's not specifically with our site. I do fiddle with the specifications when I'm trying to ask the product to do something a bit different. If I'm looking for a more of a mulch versus a soil conditioner or a fertiliser, I will manipulate the percentage of fines in the product. If I'm looking for a more mulch water-saving product and there's a more coarser fragment in there, if I'm looking for sort of a multivitamin for my vines, then I'll tend to get a blend with a higher fraction of fines in it that break down very rapidly and give the vines almost a, a hit that's equivalent to an inorganic fertiliser hit. Very interesting. And can you give me a bit of context then to the operation? When and why did you start using the composted mulch? Uh, we started, I'll say, um, doing that in a substantial way back in 2003. And 2003 in Australia was the start of quite a dry period that spanned over seven years, particularly in the southeastern areas of South Australia. We went into, you know, what history is recorded as one in 1,000 year drought. So um, rather than necessarily just hurl more water at, uh, at a vineyard, we started looking at the options for um, investing in some composted green organic mulch and doing some trial work with that. Um, we were pretty fortunate, I guess, that there'd been a fair bit of work done in Australia. Katie Webster, John Buckfield done a fair bit of work with the products that we had available to us so that there was some good objective uh, empirical data for us to make some of the decisions that we had to make um, at a practical commercial level. So we weren't having to start from a zero base there. I was able to sort of make some of those decisions, you know, reasonably big decisions. And in 2003, we took a significant uh, exercise and mulched over 600 hectares of the yard in one year. 
you know, 33,000 cubic metres of composted green organic mulch, so probably one of the largest single exercises ever undertaken in the country. You dove in the deep end. <laughs> Absolutely. And um, like you said, it was very handy to have the research, I'm sure, to make the process easier to plan and predict. Um, and for our audience, that study is the CSIRO report, Compost as Mulch for Vineyards, by John Buckerfield and Katie Webster. And uh, that report found that in certain circumstances, using composted mulch on a vineyard can increase the yield by up to 35% and midsummer soil moisture by 30% as well. So they're very good findings. But even still with this research, I presume there were costs and risks involved in starting the new practice on the vineyards. Can you maybe explain all of those a little bit? I'm sure even with the report, you were cautious still. Yeah, we were. Um, yeah, certainly. And from a point of view of, um, we mitigated the risks, for want of a better term, um, based on research. There are a few risks associated with it from a point of view of the type of application, the density, the um, application rates, you need to be a bit careful with that. The research is pretty strong on water saving and that helps facilitate a commercial payback. At the same time, pretty simple to do a nutrient analysis of the product, calculated that into our normal fertiliser programs and, and, and take that out over a three-year breakdown period and, and do some economic benefit of that. So, yeah, there was a risk, but... Um, what I'll call the angry risks of that were pretty low or pretty controllable from our perspective. That's very good. Uh, but apart from the risks now, there are also costs with starting to use composted mulch. Can you tell me maybe what those costs were? Yeah, look, the, um, because of the volume that we embarked on that project where we, we had a purpose-built uh, spreader made to be able to spread that particular product, that was... Um, that was a reasonable uh, investment, but in the context of the overall spend, it made sense for us to do that rather than use a contractor. But um, the costs involved were commercial at the time, and I guess it was relevant to the market. At the time, the market was pretty buoyant. We were getting paid reasonable uh, prices for our product, and the economics stacked up. But just to put it in context for you, the compost itself was around about, uh, just in rough terminology, but around about $2,000 per hectare in material, but it costs you around about $450 to $500 to actually apply to the paddock. So you're looking at around about a $2,500 expenditure. That's Australian dollars. That's Australian. Yeah, which would roughly be maybe $2,300 US dollars, and that's uh, €1,700 just about. Yeah, and just to sort of put some context around that, that's around about, um, you know, in the background spend of about $6,500 per hectare of normal operating expense. So sort of in a single year, we loaded 30% on top of our annual operating expense to do the exercise. But again, the research was showing that you'll get three years' worth of benefit out of it. And again, like all good accountants, you spread that over that period as well. So. Right, so in one year you added 30% extra to your annual operation expenses to do it. But like you said, the research showed that it lasts maybe three years. So spread that over three years, it adds just 10% to the operating expenses annually, uh, which is great. And now those costs were predicted costs, but were there any costs or risks as well that popped up during the operations that you hadn't accounted for? Yeah, I think um, I've spoken about our experience on a, a number of occasions uh, in our industry level, but um, you know, I had one of those sort of crucible moments where I was interstate at one of our other properties and I received a phone call from one of the managers on one of the sites who was spreading this material to uh, inform me that identified some contaminants in the product. 
And uh, this curbside collected material does have some contaminant background into it, whether it be glass or stone and anything that goes into a green wheelie bin. But uh, imagine our surprise when we started identifying syringes in the product and that ground our operation to a halt as we had to embark on a whole series of risk assessments and understanding as to what happened with that. Uh, a long story short and a lot of effort short was that uh, obviously the feed stream had been contaminated at some point in time with uh, syringe containers and had been through the composting process. And uh, we ended up over our 600 hectares having to rake the entire uh, area. And uh, after uh, going through that process, we identified over 400 new syringes in the material that had to be extracted out of that material. So it's probably a bit unusual to see me sitting here still sort of being a card-carrying supporter of compost after grinding our business to a halt and creating an, an amazing um, logistics and practical impost in our business that we still deal with today. But what we had to do was understand very clearly that those uh, contaminants represented negligible risk that we had to put in procedures to manage around that, including identifying those risks to visitors and things to our properties and our customers. But, uh, so we got together as a business and we looked at those risks and really fundamentally decided as a group that the benefits that we were targeting and that the support that we had for the product was still uh, mandated that we were comfortable to move forward with that. We worked with the industry pretty hard to uh, make sure that didn't happen to any other group and the industry responded pretty well. But I think coming out of the back of that, the message that I sort of... Uh, sort of recount to people looking at that curbside collected feedstock is that we need to be careful about the fact that really the syringes were acute and they're emotive, but what they represented to me was just risk. And that if syringes can find itself in your feedstock stream, then really there are probably no rules about that. And as a community, as a supply chain, we really need to work hard on making sure that the public putting material into their green wheelie bins understand the implications and the ramifications of the decisions that they make on their front lawn. Yeah, that's really good you say that. And uh, we've spoken a lot about education in the past and the importance of connecting people with the process so that they understand where the organic materials go and what happens with them. For example, um, when we were talking to Jerry Gillespie of City to Soil in an earlier episode, um, he told us about their extremely low contamination rate. And he attributes this purely to um, making people understand what's happening with their organic materials. Uh, we go into detail as well about this in lesson four of our online course on compoststory.org. Now we go through the whole process of how to set up an education and communication strategy when you're implementing a new curbside system. Uh, so anyone who's interested can definitely check that out. Um, but as a business like yourself, what can you do to help control the contamination rate? Yeah, I think that if I was talking to, well, I guess we are potentially talking to um, people considering using it, is that you really need to do your, your homework with your suppliers. You need to do the homework on the product. You know, and I'm not sure of the standards in the other countries, but there's an Australian standard for composted green organic, and it's a basic standard, but it's a good Australian standard or international standard as to what actually the process the product has to go through. That's a really good first start. It's not everything, and frankly, it's the base hurdle that products should jump over, and that helps manage some of the agri-risks, but it also demonstrates that the business is actually operating in a sustainable, professional manner. And then you really need to go around and get your hands dirty and have a look at the product, look at the process, and understand that if you're just buying a couple of bags, you know, it's a return on your time, really. But if you're, if you're looking and embedding it in your production systems, then it's imperative that you go and have a look at that. Not only the process, but I'd argue understand very clearly where the supply is coming from 
and 10 or 11 years down the track, we're quite discerning about the feedstocks going to our composted green organic mulches. We still use curbside materials, but we also use very specific streams and also have a supplier base that will uh, create blends from specific streams for me as well. My experience with the industry is that it's pretty um, proactive in that context. Every day the technology improves for sifting and sorting and managing contamination in the curbside products, but nothing beats stopping it getting in there. And I think as a as a community, as an industry, there's still a lot of work to be done to make the home gardener understand the, the sheer responsibility that they have because um, it dramatically adds the cost. It dramatically impacts upon the decision-making of blokes like me. And, uh, you know, if we could remove those variables, we had a magic wand that could remove those variables, then uh, look out. You know, the product is a very powerful product. Yeah, excellent points. Um, and just to go back now about regarding costs and risks, obviously contamination was the biggest risk you encountered. But for costs, what were the biggest costs that you experienced? Uh, I presume transportation of the product itself was one of the biggest ones. Uh, look, at Definitely the distance to the producer is really important. It doesn't weigh a lot, so it's the bulk density of the products generally, uh, you know, you can only jam so much in a truck. So there's a large volume for weight that you're transporting. So um, I guess this is where some of the other products have gone to panelized structure and tried to get a bulk density increase, but unfortunately you lose some of the benefit of that loose open-aired structure that you're looking for with the, with the mulch. So. Certainly, uh, transport is a big factor. It's probably dangerous for me to talk about percentages of that because it's so variable depending on how far you are from. But it can range from you know ten percent of the product cost to forty percent of the product cost. Uh, yeah, that's quite a variable difference. So finding a supplier close by would be optimal. And I'd like to move on a little bit and talk about the strategy for using composted green mulch on your vineyards. I know you're keen to get the best value out of the product. So how do you apply the composted mulch to achieve this? Yeah, okay. We, look, we started, um, we started with a very blanket approach, non-sophisticated. Start at one corner of the paddock and go to the other corner and that was as sophisticated as our strategy got because we were looking for that sort of water-saving fertiliser input benefit across the whole board. Then we found almost by accident we we use um, remote sensor satellite imagery on uh, our vineyards to look at biomass. Um, and what we found by accident looking at some of those images after we'd done the mulching work where we'd put in some trial works was we were having some profound impact and uh, – where we were taking sort of low biomass, low vigor areas and really dramatically shifting those profiles. And it got us thinking about, you know, how can we maximize the benefit of that? And I guess it dovetailed into the fact that as the product is reasonably expensive, you want to put it where it's going to give you maximum value. And we started doing some trial work on that where we, we looked at taking it into the weakest sections of our paddocks, applying it to those and then looking for a, a response out of that. Just to give you a bit of a background as to that and viticulture particularly, vineyards are very linear. You know, they're built on trellis and they're very linear. And variability, no matter how accurate you were with your soil surveys and your selection of your paddock, you end up having high vigor areas or stronger areas and some weaker patches on, on shallower soil. So, And managing that vigor variance is that's sort of viticulture 101 and, uh, you know, we do that generically by managing our fertiliser and trying to sort of trim or manage our irrigation as best you can, but you end up trying to average that out against the whole block. And what we what we started to do was 
do some experimental work where we just went into the wheat sections and applied and then tasked the satellite again and had a look at another image and see whether we can even out the figure. And, you know, it was really quite astounding the, the responses that we were having on that. And I guess the satellite imagery allowed us to objectively validate that as well. That's great. And it was at this point that you started looking at the cost benefit of the mulch. Uh, so what were your findings? Uh, we What we found was, if I explain to you, we, you might have a 10 hectare paddock that might be contracted to a certain customer and they might say, well, you can deliver 100 tonne off that block. If that block's delivering you 100 tonne, that's great. Everybody's happy. And uh, But in reality, what happens in most paddocks is half of that paddock might be delivering you 12 tonne of the hectare and the other half of the paddock might be delivering you eight tonne of the hectare. That's really crude, but you, you've got sections that are working harder than other sections. And if at the end of the day the equation equals what your customer wants, then everybody's happy. But if you've got a situation where uh, you're underperforming because the vineyard's not delivering to its capacity, intrinsically what you try to do to meet that uh, contractual opportunity is, well, you can maybe drive the rest of the vineyard a bit harder. And that exacerbates this variability if you've got a problem. It sort of becomes a spiralling cycle at that point. One of the great things we found with the mulch was when we started to um, put GPS sensors on our harvesters and we tracked and we found this sort of yield variation that was happening in our paddocks, we lined them up with our biomass images from the satellites on the canopy densities. That the correlations were pretty good. So we figured that if we can make the wheat sections of our paddocks work a bit harder, then we don't have to drive the whole paddock up just to meet those obligations or meet those opportunities. And that's where we really started to look at good positive returns on the investment. You know, we did some work that we published a bit of that, uh, you know, showed the capacity of the tank areas increased those in yield by 20% or thereabouts. And, uh, you know, depending upon your price profiles, at that particular time, it was a single year payback for us with a three-year delivery of that uh, result. So, you know, besides the commercial, it actually improved that product. It created a more even vineyard block, so our customers are happy. We're happy because we're, you know, meeting the targets and uh, and we've actually minimised our requirement to spend money on the mulch as well. So we're just putting it where we're getting maximum return on it. So you experienced then a single year payback with a three-year result, which is really excellent. Though I suppose that's particular to your experience? Yeah, look, the key point that I would like to make, or I think it's really important, is if I was to run that metric again today in a different price metric, uh, different yield parameters, you know, be very careful. It's going to be very specific to your site and, and the market that you're playing with. If you're growing a very high-quality product and uh, where a ton to the hectare makes a big difference because of the price point, then it amplifies the impacts. Uh, if you're uh, you know, in a different quality spectrum, then you need to do the numbers yourself on that. But it's really about the key return on investment is if you've got latent potential or underperforming potential and you can capitalise on that by returning that area to a better performing area and therefore there's a market for that fruit, there's an opportunity to sell it at a certain price point. So. Mm-hmm. And the thing that jumps out at me is the 20% increase in yield, actually. That's incredible. But how was the quality of the grapes themselves then? Because an increase in yield can mean lower quality sometimes. Yeah, you got to, so this is uh, it's the other point. You be really careful with that because um, if you've got a vine that's operating at a certain potential and you just make it more vigorous to grow more tons, then there's a threshold in, in viticulture where that can potentially detract from the quality of the grape. And that, again, to me, is the advantage of targeting weak areas that are underperforming and potentially haven't got enough leaf over the top and maybe too exposed fruit. 
and then you can create a situation where you can grow a more healthy canopy on that vine and get better protection for the fruit and, and at the very least improve the quality of those underperforming areas. That's a very good system then. And there were more benefits as well that you had. Uh, you mentioned water saving benefits and we talked about the study, but how much water did you save in the end? Yeah, look, we, um, we went into the whole exercise, I guess, with the view that we were potentially going to save 30% of our water. It was a particularly dry year. Again, we were adding into the drought, so we almost abandoned the need for that. We almost ignored the water saving component of it. Uh, we wanted to maintain the biomass, so I think that what we found was our ability with the mulch on board was to create a more healthy canopy than what we otherwise would have at the same sort of water level. The research that Katie Webster and John Buckingham did was uh, that's really quite categorical in that they were looking at about about a thirty percent water saving, and I have no concerns about that in the right applications that uh, you could deliver with that. We personally now use the uh, products in more in a remedial sense and spatially remedially. So the whole aim is to take a block and be able to just apply a normal water level rather than have to apply more water to compensate for the weak area of a block. So we can fix the weak area and then just water the entire area normally as well. So, Okay, interesting. So for you in such a dry, drought-prone environment um, or climate, the benefits are mostly that you don't have to increase your overall irrigation costs using this mulch in low vigor areas especially. And is there anything else that viticulturalists need to keep in mind in order to achieve success using composted mulch? Look, I'm a huge fan, absolutely huge fan of trialing everything. So it costs virtually nothing to go and put mulch on a few rows and see what happens and just record it, put a control in place, put a treatment in place, do that in three different varieties in three different soil types and you'll learn for yourself. And that's ultimately how we started and ultimately what gave us the confidence to go really broad acre on some of this sort of strategy. But it started with two rows of vines and, you know, lick of the finger and stick it in the air and see what happens, really. And there's a bit more science behind it because you can you can measure it and, and do the analytics that you need to do. But uh, at the same time, I'd say it's not for every site. If you're on a high vigor site, a wet site, you need to be very, very cautious about it. And, you know, you'd need to really have a look and hard think about uh, the applications for that. And just really my overriding comment with these products is just know the source and know the quality of the product and don't be afraid to ask and don't be afraid to have the uh, analysis done and, and look at the analysis and make sure that you've done a little bit of background work on it. That's great advice. And we have to wrap up now, but I have one more question before we go. I was wondering if you ever considered using cover crops on your vineyards because in part one we spoke about cover crops and their benefits. We, um, it's interesting, we did, and we, we compared cover crops. You know, we looked at, you know, the biomass that uh, we can generate with a cover crop, and the reality is you just can't generate, you can't grow internally um, enough cover crop to make a material difference. A really interesting thing we did with cover crops on one of our properties was almost using the same theory that we did with the satellite imageries. We grow cover crops in all of the vineyard block, and we use a forage harvester, which is a machine that, cuts and collects the cover crop, take it out of the paddock and compost it, and then bring it back in and spread it on the weak parts of the block again. So we're actually using a cover crop to potentially de-vigor the high-vigor areas and at the same time taking the nutrients from there and transplanting them there with the compost process in between. We found that to be really, it's a really good way to draw down on a high-vigor area 
by planting a hungry cover crop and yet put that benefit back into the same paddock where it's uh, where it helps you even not. So. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's a really interesting use of cover crops, actually, um, to control the vigor of the vineyard. Um, unfortunately, Ashley, that's all we have time for today, but thanks very much for coming on the show. Thanks. All right, all the best. Yeah, you too. You too. That was Ashley Keegan for the Organic Stream on CompostStory.org. I hope you enjoyed the show. Do please leave any comments or questions on our website, CompostStory.org, or on our Twitter. Our Twitter handle is CompostStoryOrg. That's all we have time for this week. Tune in again next week for more great stories. <laughs>